Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 1067 FM. You can go to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. Newly designed site. You can see all of our past interviews, our past shows, some beautiful show art, which I think is not appreciated enough, and uh, any kind of videos that we've put out there into social media you'll be able to see. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki. It is a bit of a sunny day now, so it's getting a a bit nicer. Uh, We're obviously breaking past the second half of March. Things are looking good. Are they looking as good for my trusty colleague, David Clement, in Toronto? That's the question. They they are. Um, I just got word from a couple of the local golf courses that they're planning on opening by the end of March. Um, so that's for, the only important metric for you. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I mean, golf was like the only normal thing I could do for like four or five months last spring slash summer. So, uh, could you imagine they shut the golf course down? Is it, is it because you're hanging out in the club afterwards or, you know, what's the reason for that? Cause it's literally being outside hitting a ball. Yeah. So they overreacted a little bit and then luckily um i think it would be golf canada is like the official organization that represents the industry lobby they're the lobby group yeah they lobby quite heavily to say no this is completely an outdoor activity you can close the clubhouse and people can still pay golf and you just assume that they will either golf with their own um family members or keep their distance which i mean if you're playing golf that's super easy so um, they did quickly kind of pivot and, and open. I think they opened maybe a week or two late in the last golf season. Um, but yeah, it's, it's nice that golf will be back. Uh, vaccines are of starting. Of course, for the, for, the, for the rest of us poor schmucks, we're not used to even having a club or anything like that. We, we just pay to get on the course where there's plenty of divots and holes and, uh, <laughs> you know, pay our five bucks and, <laughs> and go and hit balls in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and, and vaccines are starting to roll out and get into people's arms, especially that older demographic here. Um, so positive signs kind of feels like there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. I know some of my family members have now gotten the vaccine. My dad has got the vaccine. My stepfather has gotten the vaccine. My mom is slated to, to get be getting her vaccine soon and other members of my extended family. So it's not only is it a huge relief, but it's an incredible testament to human ingenuity to realize that we're one year from the first lockdown. So when things really got serious and we realized that this was going to be a global pandemic and we already have people being vaccinated with what is a highly effective and very safe uh, vaccine, regardless of the ones that are available. And so what a, what an incredible story. I think we'll probably look back at this years from now and just marvel at how quick, um, how quick people were able to actually figure out how to vaccinate against this, this virus. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think we definitely will. I think you and I will, people like us will. I'm not sure about the rest of the population, David, I got to be frank. I'm, I'm not really feeling optimistic about, our sort of chances and how the market looks coming out of this. The reason I mention this is the there are several hearings that are being scheduled and uh, even some FTC decisions in the United States 
uh, to try to break up pharma companies. Yeah. How evil they are, how terrible they are at having delivered us these vaccines. And I'm seeing much more of the rhetoric also come out of this in seeing that the status quo will soon be, you know, a kind of herd immunity or a fairly large number of the population vaccinated, that even then many restrictions will still apply, that really the science does not back. But yeah. I'm not really feeling too optimistic. Obviously, personally and health-wise, to have those members of your family vaccinated. I think it's the same in North Carolina. Uh, it's actually pretty much all the members of my family have already been back vaccinated over the course of the, the past month or two. And I think my mom is the last one, and she's probably going to go this week or next, depending on the appointment. But man, I tell you, for the uh, political leaders, the health administrators who've become our new celebrities— I, I don't know if they're just kind of loosened grip. I think there's still there's still a push to try to control whatever that means the virus. Yep. And I yeah I don't know how to look at the end of this. Well, I think for our listeners, the really important thing here in in terms of keeping people accountable is that uh, reducing the transmission rate of the virus. The purpose of that is obviously to keep people safe and to prevent our healthcare system from being overwhelmed. It's not to have zero cases forever. Um, in the same way that we don't have zero cases for other diseases like shingles or mumps or uh, things that we regularly vaccinate for, there are instances where there are still some uh, of those cases, but we don't approach those from a zero perspective. And so I think it's really important for for listeners or concerned citizens or however you want to describe uh, the people listening to our show is it's not about COVID zero. It's about flattening the curve. And I know a lot of people will probably have a very uncomfortable reaction to flatten the curve because at this point last year, it was two weeks to flatten the curve, two weeks to flatten the curve. Um, so it's really important to keep that in mind. I, I, it really should be an easy formula to say, whatever our comfortable uh, herd immunity rate is of the adult population, whatever that number is, two weeks after we hit that number should be wide open. And that's it. Should be. Should, should be. be. Question that's, is if that, it will. That, that's what it yeah. should be, though. It should be two weeks. I mean, and there's going to be some pressure uh, I mean, I saw a headline the other day, the Texas Rangers baseball team will have a sold out opening game, sold out. Now, that may be pushing the boundaries of whether or not that's safe or not. And I think people could could argue that maybe it's a little too soon for that. Eh, OK, um, but there are going to be jurisdictions like Texas, like Florida, who maybe or hopefully set an example of how it's appropriate to reopen and how you can reopen and still keep transmissions low uh, and low enough to protect the healthcare system. And so um, fingers crossed that um, the optimist view <laughs> wins out and wins not, out, not, yeah. the, not the pessimist view, but you're right. There are certainly some things to be concerned about. And uh, it's definitely been a battle for the optimists uh, this week. Uh, Many of you might have seen some of the news headlines from the European continent. Uh, there seems to be 
issues uh, with um, many political reactions to what is happening with one of the vaccines developed uh, between the Swedish firm AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. This is the AstraZeneca vaccine. It was approved by the European Medicines Agency. Um, I, I think it's it's up, you know, there's been hundreds of millions of people who've received this vaccine around the world, but specifically in Europe. Uh, there were uh, a few isolated cases. Uh, people don't know if it was related or not to the vaccine itself, but people who received the vaccine did later receive blood clots. Uh, we can talk about that number in a bit. Uh, but really what has happened is you have Cyprus, Luxembourg, Latvia, you have Sweden, you had Germany, you had Spain, you had Denmark, France. all of these countries coming out, and France, and all of these countries coming out and saying that they will not be giving this vaccine out anymore. Uh, we're not even talking about the numbers and, and all of that, but that's what happened. Even if the European medical authority came out and said it's totally safe, it's totally fine, you can get it. Um, I know a good number of people who've gotten it in Austria, here where I live. There's a lot of people who are getting it around the world. It's not yet uh, open for use in the United States, but it is in Canada. And we're seeing uh, what many might call the precautionary principle here at play. We've got an article we'll share in the uh, the show notes there, consumerchoiceradio.com from Spiked, about the precautionary principle. And uh, I tell you, this is something that is is really making a lot of people's heads explode David, because we're seeing uh, basically just abuse of statistics and numbers, or maybe just total ignorance of them. Yeah, I think that I think the European pause of the AstraZeneca vaccine will either be the worst public health decision of this pandemic, or it will run a close second to health regulators initially telling us not to wear masks. Um, It'll be a close one-two between those two in, in regards to what were the dumbest decisions. Um, we know that, I mean, first off, we know in real time of the efficacy and the safety of this vaccine from its widespread use in the UK. So it's not experimental. This is not some hypothetical um, safety um, estimation that we have. We know in real time. And two, a lot of these decisions are being made based on just a real inability to understand prevalence. So the example of blood clots, well, the, the prevalence of blood clots for the AstraZeneca vaccine is lower than the natural rate of blood clots, which means that you're more likely to naturally have something like that occur, um, which really completely destroys the case for pausing the vaccine. And we already have all sorts of other uh, medications in circulation. One that's very common is the birth control pill. And I think the rate of, of blood clots with the birth control pill is about 100 times higher than, uh, or sorry, 50 times higher than, um, than the natural rate and what is being recorded with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I think we're certainly going to look back on this and just go, okay, well, a bunch of people um, have unfortunately gotten the virus and some have passed away because of this idiotic decision. And there, there's absolutely no doubt about that. We do want to give some additional context. So we will be speaking with our colleague, Fred Roda, who's a health economist. We'll put that in in our uh, podcast bonus. 
So go over to our website if you're listening on the radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. Find the latest podcast, this one, and you'll find our, our little short interview with Fred. He kind of gives a breakdown from an health, a health economics perspective. I think there's a lot of that that has been missing in the debate. Um, it's, it's frankly unnerving because, you know, I happen to live in this block and have friends across the EU who now face less of an ability to get vaccinated and get back to normal. Um, in Austria, we're a bit lucky. Uh, the, the chancellor here has uh, said that he's going to continue on. He understands statistics, and he's listened to the experts, at least who are advising the Austrian government, and he's all in. And he's even committed, David, to taking the AstraZeneca vaccine live on TV just to show good. that he's all in on it. That's good. I'm not I'm not usually in favor of kind of those symbolic gestures, but I actually do think with the amount of hesitancy that there is, I mean, I see it all the time, whether it's on social media, it's it's it is useful for folks to use themselves as evidence of efficacy and safety. And so I like that. Um, there's a lot of misinformation going around. I think a lot of people just don't realize that never in the history of, of mankind has a vaccine been under more scrutiny. So a lot of people oh, yeah. will whine and say, well, it was so fast and all of this stuff, really ignoring the fact that there were uh, tens and tens of thousands of people who went under um, clinical trial in order to prove safety and efficacy, but never ever in the history of any vaccine we've ever created uh, has there been so much scrutiny. And so um, the more we can do to chip away at that hesitancy and to allow for people to make better and more informed choices, um, the, the better outcome we're going to get because ultimately we'll get to whatever that magical herd immunity number is sooner rather than later. And then if, uh, if folks like you and I can, can successfully convince legislators to do the right thing, hopefully that will um, return life back to normal. Um, sooner rather than later, and hopefully we aren't. Can I get an amen? Yeah, hopefully we aren't having this conversation again, um, debating whether or not we're going to be able to have, spend Christmas with our families or something like that. Yeah, and that that'll definitely be the thing to come. Uh, well, stay tuned if you're on the podcast for the interview with Fred Roda. Uh, otherwise, we're going to move on to segment two, an interview with Rachel Chu about big tech antitrust and everything tech related. Stay tuned. So, Fred, we've heard uh, about the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's been big in the news. There are a lot of doubts. Many countries that are actually halting a vaccination of their domestic populations with this vaccine. Others are, you know, actually keeping it. And we're really not understanding what's happening here. So if you could just give us the breakdown, what does this mean uh, for the European countries? Why are people sort of backing off of this vaccine? And what does this mean for other jurisdictions that might actually be thinking about approving AstraZeneca or, or something similar in the next couple of weeks? Six out of one million patients who received the AstraZeneca vaccine in several European countries developed blood clots or thrombosis uh, after receiving the vaccine. It's still not clear if it was caused by the vaccine or if it's a coincidence. It could actually be that it was caused by the vaccine. And that's very unfortunate. But looking at the bigger picture, for instance, if you look at birth control pills, about 
500 to 1,000 women taking birth control pills out of 1 million develop similar symptoms. So we have uh, about 100 times smaller risk developing these symptoms uh, by taking the AstraZeneca vaccine compared to uh, a very well-established drug such as the birth control pill or different birth control pills. Now what happened is the regulator, the European Medicines Agency in the European Union did not suggest to withdraw the vaccine. They say it's, it's a risk, but it's very small and people should keep administrating the vaccine. But several countries, including Germany, France, Italy, and Spain have pushed the pause button. Um, this is concerning, especially given the fact that Europe is much slower with the vaccine drive compared to the United States. And that means Europe will stay much longer in lockdowns and economic depression. So what happens now? Because politicians are overly careful, they add fuel to the fire of vaccine critics. Um, even if in one week the AstraZeneca vaccine is being uh, re-administered or given again, we will still see many people not trusting the vaccine. So they uh, did themselves not a favor at all because the entire problem gets prolonged. And we have here this problem, you would probably call it a catch-22. On the one hand, we have lockdowns and social distancing because we apply the precautionary principle when it comes to COVID. But then we're even more cautious when it comes to solutions for this problem, such as vaccines. And if you could, if you could explain, Fred, what is the precautionary principle and, and why is that something that is being discussed and something that we actually need to pay attention to? Absolutely. The precautionary principle basically means as long as we have not figured out that something cannot cause any harm to us, we should not approve it or allow it. And um, a certain application of it probably makes sense. But if you see the precautionary principle on steroids, as you see now, by having six out of one million cases that go wrong, I mean, much more people will die of COVID by not getting vaccinated than the side effects of the vaccine. And uh, if policymakers keep being so careful and cautious with everything and basically want to eliminate any risk in life, we'll basically need to ban everything and not allow anything. And that is, that is a big problem and really bad news for Europe. And in terms of the politics of this, we saw that, uh, you know, whatever it was, the countries that you named, Germany, Italy, Spain, and uh, Denmark, I guess it was. Yes. But all of these countries kind of came out all on the same day. And yet there are still many jurisdictions that are giving these vaccines. What is happening at the political level when it comes to pressure? Is it something that's determined in the health ministries? Is it just at a political level? Is this just kind of a, a PR thing? What do you think is sort of the, the political drive behind this? It is, it is political. It's politicians being worried about bad news and bad headlines. And every death is something they want to prevent. But by trying to prevent this, they will cause more deaths than they can actually prevent. You can, for instance, see the United Kingdom or also Canada, which very proactively in the last couple of days said they will keep administrating AstraZeneca because they still deem it as safe. So do, does the European regulator. So it's just politicians who say, well, while our independent regulator says it's safe, we don't trust it anymore and we want to see more investigations happening. What I would recommend is to tell people, listen, there's a risk taking this vaccine. It's very, very small. And if you don't trust the vaccine, it's your personal decision not to take it. No one is forced to take it. And I saw many voices on the street and read it in the media that many people said, I'm, I still want to take it, but now their governments deprive 
individuals to get vaccinated. Anything else that we should know, Fred, when it comes to this larger debate? I know there's there's probably going to be more of this that comes in the various jurisdictions, certainly between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, there's already a bit of, you know, strange vaccine PR warfare from many different countries, but uh, this just seems to really muddy the water even more. I would recommend Canada to move forward and keep using the AstraZeneca vaccine. If more European countries stop using it, it's actually good news for Canadians uh, because they might have earlier access to more doses. And at the same time, the FDA and the United States uh, need to move fast to also approve this vaccine because it has been used for now a quarter of a year in the United Kingdom and it's still not approved in the United States. And while the U.S. vaccine drive is going really well, there is no reason to not allow more vaccines on the market so patients have quicker access to it. There you go. Thanks so much, Fred. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM. Uh, we told you before that we'd have a treat and indeed we do we're speaking with rachel chu she was a young voices contributor she writes about technology and employment policy she's been published in the usa today the american conservative and elsewhere she works at a dc-based think tank you can follow her thoughts on twitter at rachel h chu c-h-i-u rachel thanks so much for coming on consumer choice radio thanks so much it's great to be here so the reason we want to have you on is there's a lot that's happening with regards to so mentioned big tech. And uh, the one article that uh, we had passed along was from Tech Dirt. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite blogs that I've been reading for a long time. And your article is Misguided Crusade for Tech Antitrust Will Exacerbate Inequality. And you, you have a lot of different points that you mention in here, but uh, just kind of give us, if you could, for the listeners, a kind of broken down version of your argument and why you think uh, any of this type of uh, antitrust action in Washington, D.C. will exacerbate inequality. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. Um, so just to provide some background information, um, over the past few months, we've seen this growing fight against big tech in Congress. And it's surprisingly something that um, both sides of the aisle can agree upon. Um, so Democrats believe that these big tech companies are too powerful whereas Republicans have this ongoing gripe against the companies for uh, perceived conservative censorship. And antitrust is a tool that they both seem to gravitate towards. Um, and while bipartisanship is usually a welcome departure from what we usually have, um, in this case, it's only created this anti-tech echo chamber um, where they see bigness is perceived as badness um, and we see this type of discussion rather than a thoughtful discourse of whether or not there is anti-competitive behavior, which I would say no. And more importantly, whether the effects of antitrust enforcement in these instances would be beneficial. And I would say and argue that it would cause more harm uh, rather than preventing consumer harm. And, and so on on the on the conservative side, I would love it if you could if you could weigh in on perceived biases because that seems to be something that dominates the center right uh, ecosystem. Is that Facebook and Twitter are are uh, biased against conservatives and they censor conservatives more than they do their liberal 
or progressive counterparts. Is there any weight to that claim um, or is that just perception? So I would say that these tech companies are not perfect. And the way that they go about running their websites is not always ideal and mistakes are going to be made, especially when they're so large. Um, but mistaking that for a reason to break them up, to change their business model, to erode the consumer experience is not the way to go. And I think we see what you mentioned and what I did as well about uh, conservative bias, um, along with the fact that they're, they're too big. They're reasons to not like tech companies, but are they necessarily reasons to engage in antitrust enforcement? And uh, that question, I think, is a little bit more murky. Definitely. And one point that I thought was very interesting, and it, I think it relates to the inequality, and it's something that we don't necessarily think about often in these domestic policy debates over tech companies, is that most of these companies have international reach. They have an international client base. And one point that you mentioned in the article is that many of these restrictions, uh, if they were to be enforced, would actually harm human rights, uh, spe uh, specifically those of human rights advocates and victims of totalitarian regimes. Uh, you mentioned the example of WhatsApp, the encrypted messaging app, and that if uh, for some reason the government would force Facebook to spin this off and sell it because it's not necessarily a, a hugely, uh, we'll say, lucrative product, uh, that might be shut down or who knows what might happen to that. And that therefore the people that rely on this app to communicate and to do so without, you know, the sensors, they would actually put, be put in harm's way. You know, are there other examples or perhaps um, things that we're not even thinking of when it comes to human rights that could also be impacted by any of these uh, very crazy types of antitrust actions? Yeah, of course. And I think that's the scary thing about all of this, that we talk about how big tech has all these issues. But then when these proposals um, are given, they don't really talk about what the impact is gonna be. So like you mentioned, WhatsApp is one example of this. Um, regulators have already targeted Facebook for its recent mergers and they're attempting to unwind that. Um, one being Instagram, one being WhatsApp. Um, and for that one specifically, I foresee two issues because WhatsApp is not monetized, um, there's going to have to be a drastic change to the business model um, in order to support the, uh, the application if it cannot benefit from Facebook's bigness. So one option I see is that it could be a subscriber model, which would mean that it's less accessible, um, or they would have to introduce ads, which would pose security issues for those who really need it most. Um, and like I said, I think that there's such an inherent risk when we talk about how uh, big tech needs to be taken down, but we haven't really looked at the impact in its widest scope and people who we may not even think may be caught up in all of this can really be harmed. And I'll do one follow-up on that. You know, one portion again that you mentioned in the article and that is often overlooked is that we're talking about you know the bigness of these companies, but oftentimes it seems that the rules that are being proposed or the, a lot of the actions by some of these enforcement agencies would actually serve to restrict the entire marketplace altogether. So then the question becomes, if they were to do this, could you even have a competitor to a Facebook or a Google or any of these other companies if it, it is then so restricted? Um, and then essentially, what would that mean for, for consumers in that case? That's exactly right. So we're seeing that 
it's almost bad if you get too big. So it's almost like if you are too su successful, then that's perceived as um, unfairly participating in the marketplace. But I think something that's important to think about when we talk about all of this is that market dominance, monopoly power, those in and of itself are not illegal. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in the context of antitrust, the reason why the consumer welfare standard is so important, um, even though it has been under fire in, in the last few years, um, is because it shifts the focus to how does all of this affect consumers? And I think it's without a doubt, the largest uh, population in all of this is consumers. We are all consumers, uh, but we're seeing that there's the shift to say, okay, how are individual competitors being affected? And in that case, the government starts to pick winners and losers, and that should be a, a frightening thing. Um, in that in that sense of, of competition and monopoly power, uh, I mean, Yael and I in the past have chatted about the headlines about MySpace back in the day, that, that MySpace was just too powerful, and the headlines at the time that MySpace needed to be broken up. Um, do you think that examples like MySpace should cause maybe some sense of caution for legislators where what is perceived today may not always hold true for the future? I think that's exactly right. Um, right now, we're, what we're seeing with big tech, that's just what is socially and politically expedient because there's this growing, as we said, sustain for big tech. Um, but what we're seeing with all of this is, is this more for helping consumers, for improving the marketplace, or is it just an opportunity for congressmen to get that soundbite for their re-election campaigns? And that, I think, is something that we need to discuss a little bit more, because if they go and they engage in overhauling antitrust and uh, creating um, more opportunities for antitrust regulation where perhaps it's not necessary, those are going to have long-term effects. Um, and it's really going to impact consumers in the long run. And I think it's made all the more dangerous, obviously, because this is not a one-party affair. It seems as if there is a lot of bipartisanship on this. Is, is that something that you think will continue? Do you think there'll be a rift? Or do you think perhaps there will be a kind of, um, forgive the pun, but a come-to-Jesus moment where people will understand more about the innovative nature of these companies rather than, you know, this strange caricature of, of a, you know, huge vacuum cleaner of all of our data or something like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So Democrats believe that these big tech companies are too powerful. Republicans have the bias concerns. So we see that on the front end, that there's this disdain for big tech, not so much consensus on what should be done, just that they want something done and they wanna show that they took on these big tech companies. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're gonna see, I believe, is some great action in terms of a spectacle, like breaking up big tech, right? And all of the smaller options that they propose, like um, data portability, it's just not going to be enough to satisfy their bases. So something big, I think both of them may be able to agree on, but it's not going to be for um, the reasons, or it's not going to accomplish all the things that they said throughout the way. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Rachel Chu. We had an article that we just mentioned there about everything with big tech. 
And uh, you know what, David? She's not just an expert on this, but she can also discuss one of the topics that we've covered a lot on this program and that we think is very important, and that is the Chinese Communist Party. And Rachel, I refer to your article in USA Today from last month. My grandmother stood up to the Chinese Communist Party. President Joe Biden should too. Uh, I think there's very powerful piece. We'll definitely put that in the show notes so others can read. What does Joe Biden not know, or what do the American people not necessarily know about the Chinese Communist Party, its history, and perhaps its aims? Because that's something that I think a lot of people don't really know about nor follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in my USA Today piece, um, I talked about my grandmother's story. Um, this is back in the 1950s when the communist uh, regime was just coming to power. And because she had married into the landlord class, she was seen as a threat because property owners uh, wouldn't bode well in their new economic restructuring and the society that they were trying to build. Um, so because um, she was seen as a threat, they, um, they robbed her, beat her, enslaved her for many years, um, and she was able to escape, thankfully, but that regime is still in power. The CCP is still in place using those same tactics of violence and arrest. We see that with the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongers, and just it, it's so unfortunate to see that even though they've gained the economic prosperity, should, should we say, um, over the past few years and decades, they still don't have that social control that they really want um, and that they've never been able to achieve. And I think that's important in this discussion when we talk about the CCP and its threat and what they stand for and what have we seen over the past few years. So I would encourage, and this is the point that I had in that article, that the Biden administration should really think about that, that the CCP has never been able to silence their political opponents. And that for one reason that I gave is that can serve as an important motivator um, to provide asylum and refugee status to the people that the CCP perceives as a threat, people like my grandmother. Yeah, and, and the, the asylum question is an important one because I know that the, the UK in response to Hong Kong had opened up a meaningful pathway to citizenship. I think it would be great if both Canada and the United States could follow suit. Um, so I'm just curious as to whether or not you think that that's part of a viable solution for what has gone on in Hong Kong in terms of the possibility of Biden taking a second look at, at asylum or refugee status for some of these people. Definitely, definitely. Um, so with the case, and I'm glad you brought it up with the UK, um, the UK and Hong Kong are tied historically for uh, a whole host of reasons, but they have great interest in Hong Kong um, from a social standpoint, from an economic standpoint. But I would argue that the US and many other countries also do. So in the context of the US, we have millions of Americans who live in Hong Kong. We have um, financial interests as well. But then I also think that there's this human element of the American values that we have for freedom, liberty, um, all of those things. That's what the people in Hong Kong believe as well. And that's what they're fighting for right now. And that should really resonate with the people in America and other free societies. 
Thank you so much, Rachel. We've been speaking with Rachel Chu. You can read more of her work. We'll link to that in our show notes. You can follow her on Twitter at Rachel H-C-H-I-U. Rachel, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 in the Peel Region, Canada, uh, as well as Big Talker FM in Wilmington, North Carolina. A great interview with Rachel Chu. Uh, Yael, we've been chatting about the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, as well as some of the, the safety um, concerns, although I would say that it's a not not necessarily serious concerns, but maybe over an overly cautious approach in Europe. Um, what else do you have on the docket for today's show? Because I know there's a lot going on outside of the world that is this pandemic. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously, everything is kind of touched by it. Uh, there's a couple interesting things. I actually just got in the mail, David, before we started recording uh, the new book by Jordan Peterson. Interesting. Uh, so this is uh, coming out. It's called Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. Um, I've seen him do a couple of interviews, but I think uh, interesting to see how a public intellectual like that kind of deals with the pandemic. I just thumbed through the first 20 pages or so, and there is a, there is a good amount of mention in the very beginning, uh, but then it peters out. But it's just another example of how everything is being affected. Uh, even <laughs> even the treaties of, of public intellectuals are affected. And uh, one article that came across the transom that I was very interested in, there's been more examinations of this, has to do with the housing boom. I think anyone who's anyone, uh, whether you're in the United States, Canada, many parts of Europe, you have seen that. This is now the buying fever uh, that probably was launched you know, back in May and June. You had people who were locked down at home or in their apartments realized they didn't have that much space. A lot of people were yearning to have a yard or a bit of, of, you know, something that they can call their own. And the article here that I have from the Wall Street Journal, we'll put this in the show notes at consumerchoiceradio.com, is just how much the market has trended upwards. And the uh, residential real estate market is, you know, is basically on a runaway train right now. We've seen so many people buying homes. We've seen prices going through the roof. David, I know you are no stranger to these prices. Just, you know, you just walk outside in your neighborhood and you're probably seeing, you know, six figure, um, it, you know, prices for something that, you know, just more than a year ago maybe would have been on the cusp. So yeah. this, this is the, the real estate boom uh, brought on by the pandemic. This is ongoing. Yeah, and it's it's totally not sustainable. Anyone who's in the GTA knows this. Uh, I mean, one example, I... I tweeted out an example from actually right around the corner from where I grew up. So this house was $430,000 in 2014. It listed in February for $699,000 and sold for $875,000. And so we're talking about a housing market. If you look at it from an investment point of view, we're talking about home prices that are beating hedge funds. Uh, on returns. And there's no way that that is even remotely sustainable. And so, in my opinion, you're either going to have housing prices basically flatline, 
um, for a considerable amount of time, or you have a lot of over-leveraged people dipping into the housing market, buying more than really what they can afford. And obviously that puts you into some dangerous territory if you have a shock to your income or there's some sort of a secondary recession post-COVID um, where we could see some foreclosures and people really start to get into trouble on these new mortgages. And so, I mean, you and I have been long, long proponents of YIMBYism, yes, in my backyard. Um, I, I don't think there could be a clearer case for building more homes and for allowing for more density. So not just single family dwellings, but some mixed use, some stacked condos, some proper condo high rises, uh, really adding to the housing stock because um, it's not sustainable and it's really, it's perpetuating that that wealth gap. Um, but there are all sorts of conversations on the, on the wealth gap and the property gap between uh, minority populations and the rest of the country. And now we're starting to see that creep in uh, also on age. So the ability for someone who's, let's say, 30, 35, has a good job, has, has, has enough savings for a down payment, not being able to actually get into the housing market like you used to be able to. So the whole thing just feels super uncomfortable for me. And I mean, obviously, it's close to home because I live in southern Ontario. So I'm seeing all of these prices just go through the roof. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's not good. And there's been, um, you know, obviously Vancouver, uh, which I believe by the metrics is the second most expensive city for real estate in the world. Is that about right? It is. That's what I read. Okay. So you have Vancouver that is on this level. We look at the average numbers in the United States. This is just to, to give you the, the facts here. If we go back to 2000 and let's go to 2011, December, the median home price. So that's median home price in the United States. 187,000. That's 2011. We're now in 2021. And in the month of, month of January, the median price, $302,600. Yeah, pretty considerable increase. And we saw just in the fourth quarter, house prices soared 10.8%. I mean, this is just insane and crazy. I know many of you might have uh, been looking at, you know, your your Zillow or your Redfin or, you know, whatever other apps out there exist for real estate. And it is true. Prices are going up. It's not making it more affordable for people who are getting into the market. And the focus of this from the consumer choice angle is much of it is, of course, uh, people who are driving up that demand, but it also is because of that supply issue that you mentioned, David. If we saw we saw in California, there's actually a great graphic someone put up about San Francisco Everyone says, oh, my God, why is San Francisco so expensive? And they showed a map that shows a red area across the entire city. And it said, this is where you're not allowed to build, um, you know, apartments that are stacked up over four or something like this. Yeah. And it's basically the entire city. So they have all these building restrictions that do not allow you to have density, meaning that the existing housing supply just has to go all the way up or people got to move away. And maybe... That's another part of this that we've seen uh, in some parts of specifically the U.S., maybe less so in Canada, people moving out really out to the country. And that's also raising prices, too, because these are people who work in the city, might have a bit more money, and they're causing the, the prices 
in the rural areas to go up as well. And, you know, if you're a young person entering the market, you have your first job, you know, it's not your, your, your parents' market, you know, no. much less your grandparents' market of <laughs> no. buying a house, you know, with your first job. Uh, I know a lot of people who did that around my age, uh, and they're, they're sitting pretty there looking at their equity. I, I do have one good anecdote um, from Vancouver, because you did mention it as one of the most expensive cities in the world. Um, there is an indigenous community that is saving the day on the housing supply in Vancouver, and it's an incredible story. So Vancouver is like San Francisco, it's almost impossible to build. This first, uh, first Nations development program is going to build, I think, something like 600 units um, on this piece of land in the Vancouver area. And local regulators are scrambling, basically saying, no, no, you can't do that. It violates all the zoning, lo zoning laws. And this community is basically saying, ha ha, those don't apply. This is our land. We're going to do what we want. There's demand for this. And so, Beautiful. yeah, so these, these, these indigenous developers are basically saying, no, 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 we get to make the rules here and we're going to build because people want to buy these. Um, so hopefully there's a little bit of relief for people in the Vancouver area. Um, we need a lot more like that. And, and I'm not talking about putting 80 story uh, towers in your, in your suburbs. I mean, we're talking about modest mixed density, mixed uh, you, you mixed use uh, buildings um, that just are easy way to still have livability, but yet increase the housing stock in a meaningful way to let people be able to stay where they want to be. Um, so it's uh, yeah, and that's that's something that I would say across the board in North America is pretty pretty poor. Um, where I'm living, at least in Europe, you know, mixed use is is pretty standard. You know, meaning that you have you you have zoning that has businesses and residential blocks, and you can have a commercial space, and everything is kind of involved. What you have in many jurisdictions is essentially this area can only be for commercial businesses. This area can only be for homes. By the way, those homes can only be single-family homes. You can't have blocks. You can't have density. You can't have larger apartment buildings. And it's that zoning that really makes it difficult for a lot of this to spread. Uh, one area that I'm familiar with is Charlotte, North Carolina, and it's actually very similar in Wilmington, uh, where part of this radio station airs. And there they do have a lot of, of, I guess, more prerogative with zoning that does allow much more mixed use. There's a lot of great communities around Charlotte that are pretty much the ideal Yimby dream of, you know, businesses all on the bottom, apartments on top. You know, you got the shopping center there. You got all, all kinds of little homes and stacked up and in larger areas and duplexes and that's the kind of stuff that people need and unfortunately uh, for many people who detest the private market it means that we need to allow developers and investors and entrepreneurs we got to let them loose got to let them build we got to let them design and be creative it can't just be left up to the zoning boards and to the city councils and the county commissions and all of this the municipalities in many instances are restricting so much of this. The focus is not there. It's, you know, oftentimes on whatever greedy speculators or something like that. Or, or the blame foreign buyers, which I think is really uncomfortable. I hate seeing that when that mm, happens yeah. all the time in Canada. They'll be like, oh, well, we just have to limit foreign buyers, which for the most part is a jab at wealthy investors or people looking to move to Canada from 
Asia or South Asia. And it, it gets really uncomfortable fast when people talk like that, because for the most part, it just isn't true. It really is a, a, a lack of, of supply. Uh, and then you see this really uncomfortable scapegoating as if it's all their fault. And that, that bothers me a lot here in terms of what happens. It happens in Vancouver, certainly, but it's also very prevalent in the greater Toronto area. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, need, uh, we need to increase the housing stock. And the current boom is just another, another example of why that's now needed more than ever. I know they've had versions of that also in New Zealand and some parts of Australia. You know, essentially, if you're a foreign resident, foreign citizen, you're not allowed to buy any property at all. Um, thankfully, the U.S. does not often have these restrictions. That's a good thing. Definitely Canada, that's a, that's a, that's a whole other deal. And there's probably other sectors of the economy, David, that uh, also deal with these restrictions on foreign ownership that might be um, basically suppressing the number of market actors, the number of entrepreneurs, there's probably so much innovation there that we don't even know could exist if we got rid of many of these restrictions. Same applies to, to zoning and the rest, right? Yeah, absolutely. Telecom, banking, airlines, they all have these foreign ownership restrictions that limit competition, that limit new money coming into the space and capital investments and all of that good stuff that makes things more consumer friendly. Um, so it's yeah, it's there's a long list of uh, of areas of the economy where we misguidingly apply this foreign ownership um, requirement or restriction. Yeah, thankfully I've I've picked up a few passports in my day, so I'm I'm, I'm a bit okay. But for yeah. for many people, it's not yeah, that easy. For those who are not James uh, Bond, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Or uh, or if you're a member of the CIA, I actually had a friend of mine here who said. Uh, you know, we don't know what your day job is, but we assume it's something with the CIA. <laughs> I said, oh, okay, you're close. It's CCC, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, so David, I think it was an action-packed show, a great interview with Rachel Chu earlier talking about antitrust, tech, talking about the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. I spoke with our, our uh, colleague Fred Holda, and if you're listening on the radio, you can go back and listen to that on the podcast, consumerchoiceradio.com. And we've put it all on the website, and I think, uh, you know, it's... It's been an amazing year for us just because we've been able to broadcast and reach new audiences and new people. People are writing us. People are sharing our content. It's been exciting. Uh, the political world has been a bit upside down. But uh, overall, David, I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we're looking. Uh, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve. Uh, I think we've had a year now to, uh, you know, open our horizons uh, in the radio broadcasting space. Yes. And I think we did it. Yeah, we have. We have on this very glorious March 372nd. Um, of that two weeks to flatten the curve. So yeah, great show as always. If you have recommendations for us, be sure to reach out and uh, we will catch you all next week. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in 
every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah.